This hour, we hear the homeless. Those people we see every day, living on the streets, all day and all night. I'm Barrett Golding of Hearing Voices from NPR. This composition is by the Arlington String Quartet. It's from the Minneapolis audio documentary, Land of 10,000 Homeless. We'll hear several pieces from that project. This first one has music by Danny Burke of The Skeptics. He calls it My Name Is. They just seem that we don't exist. We do exist. And there's a lot of us. My name is Tamika, I'm 16 and I'm homeless. My name is Renee, I'm 45 and I'm homeless. I have three children and we all are homeless. My name is Tamika, I'm 12 and I'm homeless. My name is Taisha, I'm 17 and I'm homeless. You know, we don't want to be homeless. We don't like hanging around in bread lines. We don't like going to soup kitchens. I don't sit around in a corner with a jug of whiskey in my hand. I'm trying to get the heck out of this situation, but the government just seems to ignore us like we don't exist. Well, we do exist, and and that's just the way it is. My name is Tony, I'm 14 years old, and I'm homeless. My name is Bill from St. Paul, Minnesota. I was born here, and uh, I'm homeless right now. My name is Tashina. I'm nine years old, and I'm homeless. My name is Toy, and I'm homeless. Homelessness is real. It's a painful experience. It's a shameful mark on this country. We're the richest country in the world. We have a high percentage of poverty. We have a high percentage in illiteracy. We have a high percentage in obesity. And none of these things have to exist. You just don't realize it. My name is Tony. I'm 14 years old and I'm homeless. My name is Renee. I'm 45 and I'm homeless. I have three children. And My name is Bill from St. Paul, Minnesota. I was born here and uh, I'm homeless right I'm now. Sean and I'm homeless. My name is Toy and I'm My homeless. My name is Taisha. I'm 17. My name is Nanette and I'm homeless. My name is Tashina. I'm 16 and I'm homeless. My name is Bill and I'm homeless. My name is Tamika. I'm 12 and I'm homeless. I was homeless 12 years, and I can't even begin to tell you the misery of rain. I don't even care how slight the rainfall is. It was misery beyond belief. And then sometimes you sleep during the day because it's warm enough to sleep, and then at night you keep moving so you don't freeze. And I used to watch people get on the buses, and I used to say, you know, those are, those are normal people. And, and you felt anything but normal. One time, I just happened to be sitting on this bag because if you didn't carry your blankets or your jackets around in a bag, they were gone. And here comes a homeless man. So dirty, it was just awful. I mean, his hands were like black with the exception of his knuckles and joints where the the bones had kind of rubbed through the dirt. He had rags tied on his feet and his hair was matted in two big nasty dreads. And out of all the people in Skid Row, he looked down at me and reached in his pocket and pulled out a dollar and change. That's all he had. And he gave it to me and said, here, man, I feel sorry for you. And he shuffled away. Something about that moment changed everything. I just said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to get some help. With that dollar and change, I caught the bus and I went to uh, the psych unit in the hospital. You know, I still think about it sometimes, and I don't have regrets for anything that happened because going through the uh, homelessness just made me so grateful, determined, thankful. And uh, now, every time it rains and I have keys in my pocket, I have a joy of life that you cannot believe. 
It's been five years, almost exactly, since I lost my business in my house and began a two-year stretch as a homeless person, sometimes sleeping in my car, sometimes in shelters, but mostly just wandering around. Even now that I have a house again, not a day goes by that I don't think about those days and those people out there. Was I ever really one of them, or was I just passing through like a tourist? I never stopped a stranger on the street and asked for a handout or held out a cardboard sign saying we'll work for food. I never passed out on a bus stop bench or walked through a shopping mall screaming at anyone who looked at me funny. I haven't, but I felt like it. I don't get drunk. I don't get sloppy. I don't get obnoxious. I don't yell and scream at people. I don't run over and grab hold of somebody and say, Hey, buddy, I need a dollar so I can get another beer. Maybe it's my knowing how it feels to be without a home and my fear that it will happen to me again that has kept me talking to and looking for people like Crazy John. People call me homeless. Well, hell, I'm not homeless because I live in Austin. I live all over the city. I live here, yonder, and there. Usually I sleep in uh, alleys, old vacant houses, and uh, just any place that looks cool at the time or whenever I pass out. Have you always lived like this? Like, yeah, I lived basically outside all my life. Crazy John sells his poetry for 25 cents. I've probably driven by him a hundred times before I decided to stop and actually listen to what he was selling. Street life. Hell's bells, lizards' tails, slimy snails, and things that smells like something. John says he thinks he's special. Even a genius, maybe. But he spent most of the last 20 years sprawl barefoot on the street in dirty jeans and no shirt. Street life, play five, carry knife, last full stripe, and times is tough out on the street. You can always find John on Guadalupe between Jack in the Box and Tower Records. He holds court there and usually has two or three guests sharing a quart of beer from a paper bag. All animals do this. If you are in a place long enough, you develop territorial rights. You belong. Even if you belong to a sidewalk at a certain place, then you belong. When I first met him, I was surprised to find him as lucid and thoughtful as he was. But he named himself Crazy John because he knows he's crazy. It has nothing to do with my intellect, as probably everybody can tell. It has to do with the fact that I cannot handle stress... I cannot handle, uh, well, it's stress, basically. I know what he means. That's why I don't have a real job. And every now and then, I still lose that delicate balance that enables me to pay the rent and utilities, keep a car on the road, and buy groceries. But John's lost more than that. I don't like being psychotic. What kind of things do you do? What I do is I just kind of like don't talk to nobody. And I'll look at them. I'll sit over away from them and stare at them, see who they are, what they do. Why are they in my world? I don't think it's a nice experience for other people to see me that way. No, imagine that. And besides that, I don't think it's a nice experience to see other people when I am that way. Just last Sunday, I had free lunch at the Stone Church on First and Annie Streets. Normally, I wouldn't do that, but I was hungry and I didn't have any money. There were a lot of men there who looked like John. Scraggly gray beards, long hair, black t-shirts with Harley Davidson symbols, missing teeth. They smelled pretty bad. Some of them were drunk. A few were ranting or muttering to themselves. But most of them just wanted to talk, just wanted to be heard, like Crazy John. One of the best things that you, anybody could possibly do for uh, the st- street people, the homeless or whatever, is to uh, make them feel uh, wanted. I'm not any different than they are. Would you like to hear another? Yes. I was just a young man. I was just 15. When I set out on the road trying to make the scene, and then I noticed one cold day that the years had passed and my beard was gray. I'd had and lost it all, so what can I say? 
Now I sit out here on Highway I-10, living in a bottle, waiting for my scene to begin. There are all kinds of people around here who have lost their ability to cope with the modern world. Some of them, like John, drink themselves to death and write crazy poetry that reminds them of the days when they were rockers or punks or bikers. Some of them withdraw into themselves so completely they never say a word to anybody ever again. And some of them, like me, just keep looking for a place where they might fit in. You are hearing voices of the homeless. That Carmen Delzell story about Crazy John was produced by Jay Allison. And George Hill told StoryCorps in Santa Monica about his years being homeless. There's all kinds of ways to end up without a home. Here's one of them. This is Bill Speaks from the Land of 10,000 Homeless Project. The composition and production is by Andrew Turpening. My name is uh, Bill. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. I was born here. And uh, I'm homeless right now. See, I, I took care of my dad for 12 years, and then he died. And then... Like uh, everything else, the nursing home cost and all that stuff just ate up the house, so I lost the house. And then I ended up in the street. Kind of like homeless for three years off and on. You know, I lived with friends and stuff for a while, but you know, that wears out. You just can't, you know, you wear out, you're welcome. And I live with my sister for three, four months this year, and that didn't work out either. So now I'm kind of homeless, and I'm getting old. I'm 48 years old. I'm not going to stay here very long. I don't want to be on the streets no more. I'm sick of it. It's just so hard to live. It's a transition. It's really scary. You just don't know what to do. It's kind of... It wasn't for other homeless people helping you. You know, find a place to stay or whatever. You, you wouldn't know. It's a real difficult life being homeless. And uh, it's lonely, too. Especially uh, when you're by yourself. Six o'clock in the morning, there's nowhere to go. You just wander the streets. It gets real lonely. How long does it take to lose your house if you don't make a payment? Most middle-class people spend more than what they earn anyway, so they're... They're always in the hole, credit cards or whatever. I, I believe there's a lot of people that uh, are just on the edge. But see, I'm not afraid of being homeless no more. I've done it. See, a lot of these people probably jump off the hybrid or Wabasha or the Robert. Not me. I've done it already. This doesn't scare me no more. Life's ups and downs and Sometimes you get down, and the older you get, it's harder to get up again. This is a tough country to live in. In the evening, he stands with Christ in the alley, leaning against the white brick wall of the auto repair garage finishing his second-fifth of pop-off vodka. The air is cool, and the streets are warm. The streets say, relax, man. Watch the day before it's gone, before the trees stop glowing. The alley is long, and he can't see out of it. He's got a river in his head, and it keeps leaking out through his eyes and nose and mouth. One eye is blind, 
One leg is bad. His teeth are dissolving. Jesus told him he can drink as much as he wants, and he wants a lot. One time he was a paratrooper in Korea. He landed on Porkchop Hill and prayed for Christ to get him off. Another time he was a desk clerk in the DC Annex Hotel, just right over there, across the street, but they tore it down. When the sun goes down, he walks like an old horse to the gospel mission on Fifth Street. He walks with Christ. Christ speaks to him. He says, walk with me. The mission is near. God's word tonight in Luke chapter 15. And the son said unto his father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father said unto his servant, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his, on his hand and shoes on his feet. And they, and they bring the padded calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this is my son, dead and is alive again. He that was lost is found. Home, sweet home. Home, sweet home. See the light of that city so bright, my home, sweet home. After the service, he and the others go upstairs to the fourth floor, walk down a long hallway, and into a small room with 50 bunk beds and a lavatory. He finds his bed and passes out. He has a dream in his head. He dreams of the Bowery. His friends are there. They're laughing, stumbling around, patting him on the back. Someone hit a number, and there's plenty of wine. In the morning, the streets are damp. The quiet streets and smell of rain make it seem like Sunday. He's got a desert in his head. He walks down the street like a cold lizard, Jesus tagging along behind. street would be waking up a greenhouse, bitch about what food we didn't want to eat and how much food we didn't have. Probably leave there about eight-ish because they kicked us all out. And the only way to stay was to do chores and you know I'm not gonna do chores so we left. We used to kick it at this place we called Paranoia Park after that. And usually, usually, usually one of my uh, friends who didn't stay at the shelter, one of my family members who um, somebody had called would something. come down with the new thing of drugs which is just the bags that we and that's sell. all we did all day and that's all we did all day and just find people to sell the drugs to yeah that's so we sold we sold crystal meth and that was all we ever sold and that was all we did if we, if we if it was a day when we were sick then we'd probably kick it up at a 
outside in. It's one of the clinics and drop-in centers. I don't know if they ever really knew we had our drugs on us or not, but we usually always did. If um, some of us had bikes and some of us didn't stay at the shelters, like we'd stay at the squatch or whatever. And if you stayed in the squat, then you woke up whenever you woke up and then you'd come downtown. The squat is basically, um, it's like camping. It's like <laughs> camping without the luxuries of like a sleeping bag or a tent or anything like that. It's, it's really just camping. Sometimes abandoned houses or houses that they're trying to build down or whatnot are um, under bridges and but trees. It's just anywhere you're safe at night where you can go to sleep without coming. And then you have to re-up. And when we re-up, it just means re-upping our... Um, dope supplies how much we have if you actually do the drugs you sell which i did then you have to do your shot which takes like ever because then you have to find somewhere to do it and make sure you have all the stuff and then you have to walk up and down the streets and just find people to sell stuff to you yes holding anything we'd be like yeah what you looking you for? know and if they just happened to be looking for what we had we'd take a little walk you know, sell what i had to sell get what i had to get and go you don't eat when you're on crystal you're not appetitive suppressed. That's why you get so skinny. Because you're really, you're really just not hungry. You don't even notice that you're not hungry. You're just not hungry. I think my number one thing that I always ate was Pepsi. Always Pepsi. I still Star do Star Crunch, Pepsi. which is a little Debbie snack that costs 25 cents. Because I can't spend my dealer's money, so I have to spend up my own money. That was like all I ate. That was like all I ate. When you're that out there like dealing and doing whatever you're doing and selling it and everything, it could take up to two weeks before you actually fall asleep. And every time you get tired, you just take another hit. You know, or snitch out of some of the bags or whatever and create another hit, whatever you have to do. You can't fall asleep. you got to sell as much as you can. Or you're going to be sick because you're not getting any drugs. So, yeah. But when you're really high, you don't get cold because your heart rate's going so fast that you're sweating all the time. So you don't get cold. It could have been snow. We wouldn't have been concrete. The cold actually turns into You know, like you could sleep on concrete. Every day in your life. And if you tried to sleep on a warm bed, you wouldn't be able to sleep because it's not cold. Miracle on the Streets. That's Miracle Draven talking with producer Dime Roberts. Original music by Craze MC. Scott Carrier visited that gospel mission in D.C. Coming up, we got homeless writers, a homeless dwarf in Budapest, and the Kitchen Sisters inside homeless kitchens. That's in a minute on Hearing Voices. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. You are Hearing Voices of the Homeless. From the Minneapolis Voices of the Street Project, Land of 10,000 Homeless, Here's composer-producer Andrew Turpening with his Rainy Day Mix. In the eyes of God, we all are His children, which make us obligated to each other. And somewhere along the line, that was forgotten. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. <laughs> I stay in the van sometime, I stay on the street sometime. Because you have a little money or you might live a little bit more comfortable, don't mean you're better than. Because you're homeless doesn't mean you're less than. I feel kind of hopeless right now. I feel hopeless. Homelessness is not a choice. I ain't got a place to stay. It's cold and damp in Hobo's camp. So that's what makes me. That's what hurts me. That's what really hurt me. So now they trying to get me.
want a place like everybody else. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. I want to just have my own place. Have my own thing. I feel kind of hopeless right now. I feel hopeless. I don't think anybody grew up saying to their parents, when I get older or when I get grown, I want to be homeless. I think homelessness is not a choice. It's a problem. Something went wrong. Something failed. Maybe the system. Maybe we failed each other. Maybe we failed each other. I feel that your problem is your problem. I feel that depending on the circumstances, your problem can become my problem and we can all find a solution if, just if we're willing to listen and join in, extend a helping hand, a kind gesture, you know, an embrace, you know, um, a reassurance that you're not alone. Because you're homeless doesn't mean you're less than. Thank you. The Lord is good. I'm alive. I'm alive. And that's good. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Always. Let me let you go. Would you say you came from a predominant family? Yeah, I came from an excellent family. My daddy was elected mayor twice. I used to walk down the streets holding his hand. Everybody stopped and pet me on the head and said, How you doing, little mayor? <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a wonderful daddy. Your uh, dad knew that there was alcoholism in the family. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, I had alcoholism on both sides, but the worst came out of my daddy's side. And uh, when I was about uh, 14, he said, Son, look, you come from a long line of chronic alcoholics. He said, I'm an alcoholic just waiting for the first drink, and I refuse to take it. He said, if you do, you'll get away with it for a while, but it'll destroy your life and probably kill you. And he said, I want you remember that. And I said, okay, Daddy, I'll give it serious thought. I gave it enough thought that that Halloween, I went trick-or-treating with my buddy, and um, we passed the horseshoe of frat houses. They was all out there partying, and uh, one of them frat boys said, hey, you ever had a drink? And I said, no, I hadn't. Those kids knew who I was. Everybody knew who my daddy was. He said, now, you drink this, it's going to burn. You're going to like this. I never felt so good in my life. As long as I had alcohol in my system, I was what I always wanted to be, a self-confident, good-looking, witty human being. And it worked very well for uh, 40-some more years of my life. Must take a lot of self-discipline to turn around. Well, it took more than that. I had just been released for my 28th treatment for alcoholism, and uh, the doctor told me when I left that uh, I'll give you two weeks and I'll read your name in obituaries. So I went to Chapel Hill and uh, stopped at the cemetery where my mother and daddy were buried to uh, let them know that I'm sober and going to die this way. So then I came on down to a place I knew where there's an exit ramp where cars come around. I held a sign there, homeless, anything will help, God bless. And that's where I met you. Every time you came by, you'd stick out a $2 bill and a can of tuna fish. You remember that day in front of the... Yeah, uh, the bank. It was uh, New Year's Eve, and I had nowhere to go, couldn't drink. Everybody's partying. And you walked out of the and said, uh, remember me? I said, yeah, you're the $2 bill man. He said, I'm going to take you home with me for a New Year's Eve party. How would you like that? I said, I don't think that would work, sir. You got a wife? She's going to have a lot to say to you about bringing a homeless, smelly old man home with you. You said, uh, my wife will receive you well. I went to your home and had a shower, and you gave me some clean clothes, and we sat down at the table, and I told you some stories about who I really was and who my daddy was. There was a lot more to me than uh, you might imagine. I hope I was a little bit of a help along your path. Well, you know, David, uh, without your kindness and your family and all, uh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say I'd have gone back drinking again, but I'd say uh, it would have been rough. 
I've roamed this city with nothing to eat, and I've made my bed right out on the street. I've been turned away by people with fears because my life is so much different than theirs. Tickets have been given me for walking a red light while someone's escaped a killing from a dope fight. Junkies harassed all day long. As for the dope man, he walks the street in no wrong. A baby's hunger is noise to my ears while Armageddon is near and near. As the administration says it cares, and I believe they do, but actually where? Flashing lights, so much publicity for you. While me and my people, we eat skid row stew. With hurt in our hearts and smiles on our face, we understand far deeper than space. Trickery, deceit, and misguided thoughts. To protect your interests, war's gotta be fought. Don't tell me about your one-way right. On America's streets is where I stage my fight. So come and get me if it pleases you. I'd rather die than kill my point of view. Don't be scared, just try to understand. But now, you're dealing with a new generation of black men. Music and poetry by the Homeless Writers Coalition of their CD, Sidewalk Prophets. And Edward Lanyard talked with his friend David Wright for StoryCorps in Durham, North Carolina. You are hearing voices this hour. We're homeless. Here's Nason Smith. I used to hit the park late at night and catch trout and grill them near the picnic tables. And if I wasn't fishing, I would sit at the picnic tables and smoke dope and write these long, rambling letters, letters without stamps. Letters I uh, can't remember what they were even about. I just remember I was losing it out there. She would pull up every night around two in the morning in this beat-up station wagon. And she used to dig through the trash cans near the tables to collect aluminum cans. She had a big burlap sack she filled with cans, and, and when she filled one up, she'd take it back to the car and pour the cans through the open back window of the station wagon like a waterfall of aluminum. I didn't know if she was homeless or not, but I knew she was living on the edge. That much was obvious. So for a long time, maybe a few weeks, I never saw her close up because it was always dark around the tables and she never came near me. One night I was cleaning a trout sitting near a trash can and she came over and started pulling out the cans and when she pulled out some cans and started putting them in her bag I saw her in the moonlight and this woman had been burned like burned horribly where she had all of her fingers were burned off at the first joint and her ears were like melted to the side of her head like uh Somebody forgot to blow a candle out. And I said, um, do you want some fish? And she shook her head no. And I said, you know, sit down. And uh, she did. She sat down. And so I would... Uh, share fish with this woman when I would catch fish in the pond and I you know I would fish in this pond four or five nights a week because I had nothing else to do and she never spoke to me and I, I thought she was mute and you know I assumed she was and, and and I would start to tell her about my life and of course when you are living out in the streets your successes become bigger. Uh, failures become bigger. You know, you wear a you wear a coat of defeat. That's what happens to homeless people. Is you just wear a coat of defeat that you can't ever take off.
And so half the stuff that I would say to her wasn't true. You know, I mean, and, and I, she was sort of a captive audience for me. And I would tell her about these big plans that I had when the truth was I just really didn't have a plan. You know, I'm sitting in the park fishing at three in the morning and looking for a place to sleep for the night. And so I was really slowly self-destructing. On my birthday, she sat down and, you know, I'd caught this big trout and I was, of course, telling her more of my major plans and, of course, I was still writing letters to nowhere and we got quiet well I got quiet as people often will and she motioned I was always writing something and she wanted my notebook and she took my notebook and she wrote the sky is crying it never occurred to me that this woman was listening to anything that I said. I thought I was talking to a deaf mute. Meal after meal after meal. And she took the notebook back and wrote, You need to leave before you drown. It is two in the morning in Bucharest. A face is peeking up from a hole in the sidewalk in the neighborhood of Piazza Vittorie. It appears to be the face of a little dwarf with small eyes and a bushy mustache and beard. The outline of a man passes by, walking quickly, hands in pockets. Who are you? The dwarf calls out to the moving shadow. The man slows, looks around. Who are you? He answers. The dwarf climbs out of the sidewalk hole. He takes off his mustache and beard and puts them in his back pocket and asks the man for a cigarette. He is just a boy. The man lights a cigarette and gives it to the boy, who cannot hold it. It drops from his cracked fingers and lies burning on the asphalt. He tries to stoop down to pick it up, but his small body is like that of an old man's, refusing to bend. You live down in that sewer, the man says. The boy nods. He stares at the cigarette, smoldering at his feet. And what's your name? Petrika. The man looks at him. And how are you ever going to get out of there, he says. How are you going to get out of that sewer and live the life of a real human being? Once you go down in there, it's not so easy to get out, am I right? Petrika nods, still watching the cigarette. You know, I could have gone and lived in the sewers like you, says the man. I could have dropped out of school and gone underground. But I didn't want to live the life of half a man. I wanted to be a whole human being, not a worm. You don't want to be a worm your whole life, do you? The boy shakes his head, his eyes welling up. Petrika stares at the man's face. God is in you, he whispers. I know, says the man, and God is in you too. Now pick up that cigarette. Go on, pick it up. The boy reaches down, his hand drawing centimeter by centimeter to the ground, until he touches the cigarette, closes his fingers around it, and stands back up. See, says the man, you don't have to smoke it. I just wanted you to know that you could pick it up, because you didn't think you could. Now go, go back to the sewer, and then get out of there for good. He turns and strides down the dark street. Petrika watches until the figure rounds the corner and is gone. Writer, anthropologist Alyssa Goodman with a story from Romania, produced by Larry Masset. Trout Fishing was recorded by Jamie DeLapa, produced by David Weinberg, with music by Pascal Frick. The storyteller, Nason Smith, no longer homeless. He's an English instructor at a community college in New Orleans. The homeless are with us now in every big town and most small towns. They're as American as apple pie. But where are you going to cook that pie? Here's the Kitchen Sisters from their series Hidden Kitchens in Homeless Kitchens. Message 23 was received at 1.10 p.m. today. Yes, um, I'm Margaret Engel, co-author of Food Finds. 
The George Foreman Grill has been an amazing success story as a kitchen appliance, but what I think many people don't realize is that immigrants and low-income people, the people who struggle to even get food on the table because they don't have an official kitchen and who are using George Foreman grills and the like, and it's a much safer way than a hot plate. That is, to me, the epitome of the hidden kitchen. Wow. What a wonderful story. I'd never considered it at all. I'm George Foreman, two-time heavyweight champion of the world, former Olympic champion, and king of the grills. Growing up in Houston, Texas, my whole life was spent trying to get enough to eat, having seven kids, my mother did, and there just was never enough food for me. I always dreamed about not a car, not a beautiful home, but enough to eat. My name Piggly Wiggly. I've got groceries on my shelf. My name is Jeffrey Newton, Chicago. I'm a great cook. A trait that I had learned from my grandmother, but I just haven't had a kitchen. I'm living in a shelter at this particular time, but I've been homeless all my life. I lived under Wacker Drive, where the expressway goes through, and there's about 30 or 40 refrigerator boxes down there. That's going to be your home. I would get a George Foreman grill. That's the grill that I had for a while under Wacker Drive. Me and a fellow by the name of Smokey. So you just get your long extension cord. They got a lot of electrical plugs on the poles down there. And just hook up. We was making hamburgers and grilled cheese sandwiches. Because we used to take an iron and do that too. Press down, you know, your bread and your cheese. My name is Pat Sherman, and I'm the program coordinator of the Walk-In Center here at Glide, San Francisco. When I was in the single room, I could perceive I couldn't cook in my room. Well, legally, I couldn't. I'd get me a big bowl, put me some ice in it, and voila, that became my refrigerator. Microwaves, toaster ovens, hidden under the bed or in the closet. The George Foreman Grill, that's the newest thing. Doesn't set off the smoke detectors. And since they come in colors, you know, it just looks like you're getting real fancy in your room and decorating. And it looks like you have a nice tabletop to the visible eye. But you know it's your kitchen. It's a special TV offer from the king of the grill, George Foreman. My lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine. I grew up in Houston, Texas, in the Fifth Ward area. Every day at lunch during the summer days, you hear the parents call the kids in. They would just tell me, okay, go home and eat your lunch. And these people knew I had no food at home. And I'd peep through the window at, at the kids eating, and the parents would peel the crust off the bread, and I would sit there and just hope they would just throw it out the window for me. Going to school, you go through the lunch line, 26 cents. I couldn't afford that. And I'd sit at the table, and it was so embarrassing. So what I would do, I'd get a greasy bag, blow it up on the way to school to make it look like there was a sandwich in it. Then I'd get to my classroom and say, boy, I ate my lunch. And I learned to disguise my not having food. When you're homeless, you have to find out all these things, you know. It's called trailblazing. You got to blaze the trail, you know. A lot of times uh, we went into the hospitals, it was either to sleep or to use a microwave, you know, going, <laughs> I'm coughing, <laughs> you know, and when they call your name, you don't answer, and you got a band around your wrist, so now you can sit there half the night and go to sleep, or if I'm downtown, I go to one of these office buildings, and they got a microwave, and I run in there, you know, I mean, I wasn't there to steal anything like that, I just wanted to pop my popcorn, sometimes I survived on popcorn. I did the crock pot thing. And I made it look like a flower pot. When I got ready to use it, I took my flower pot out of it, put my things in, then went to work and came home and had dinner. You make a kitchen for yourself so that you can survive. I tried to conceal my lack of things by fighting all the time. Pretty soon I became an expert at fighting. I never did get good at schoolwork. Finally, I became a dropout and I became a mugger. I actually mugged people. I think hunger makes you angry. Hello, this is Jackie Gleason, talking to you about the Job Corps. I heard about the Job Corps. If you're looking for a second chance to get an education, join the Job Corps. And in 65, I went to Grants Pass, Oregon. I had three meals for the first time in my life. It took me about two months before I realized, hey, they're going to have breakfast every day. And it changed my whole life. I started reading books. I started doing assignments. Richard Kibble, I'll never forget Richard Kibble. 
from Seattle, Washington, and he always had a book he'd read. Sort of a hippie fella. And uh, when I'd boast about how I was going to fight, he said, listen to this. And he'd bring out this fellow he called Bob Dylan. Oh, boy, I'd never heard anyone sing songs that had meaning to them. And I'd sit on the side of his bed and listen. He said, now, watch this, listen to this. And in other words, everything I was doing was physical, brutal. And I started to admire something about him, what he had on his mind. I would not feel so all alone, but everybody must get stoned. For a while there, I was selling plates of food to the other homeless people. You know, they had to come up with a little money. They gave us a room at the YMCA over on the west side. I started cooking for everybody, even though we weren't supposed to be cooking up there. I could take uh, food depository food and do wonders with it, you know, canned chicken, canned pork. We had our door wide open. I turned the music on. They know once they hear the music on Jeff's cooking. It wasn't legal at all. In 1977, when I left boxing, I realized I didn't have any friends. People weren't pouring into my home anymore. And I noticed if I'd barbecue something, they would come over. Even the guys would go fishing. I wanted them to stay and come back so much, I would always clean the fish, do all the cooking. I found out more satisfying than even winning boxing matches when people would lick their fingers and say my food was good. That grill, I'm just happy that it's helped so many people. Helped me, of course. My brother Roy and I started the George Foreman Youth Center. I have these summer camps so the kids can know to come. They can have a lunch every day. Just had to be there for them. I'll never forget. And I'm pushed and compelled. I mean, there's a food bank. All you got to do is ask George Foreman. If I can find a dime, I want to make sure you get it. I try to keep those little visions alive for myself. Feed them. I'm Sean, and I'm homeless. I could pass for a regular passerby, you know, a regular, we call them civilians. I'm on the street again. What is that? I'm on the street. I ain't got a place to stay. It's cold and damp in a hobo's camp. So that's what makes me. That's what hurts me. That's what really hurts me. My name is Gil from St. Paul, Minnesota. I was born here. And uh, I'm homeless right now. See, I, I took care of my dad for 12 years, and then he died. And then, like uh, everything else, the nursing home cost and all that stuff just ate up the house. So I lost the house. I was out on the street. It just happened so quick. It took me a while to learn how to be homeless. What do you do? A lot of stuff you, you got to learn. I mean, where the bathrooms are, if you want to go to the bathroom, where the showers are. It takes about a about a month to figure out really what's going on. The homeless people, I'll tell you one thing, they all stick together. It's a real difficult life being homeless. And uh, it's lonely too. Six o'clock in the morning, there's nowhere to go. You just wander the streets. It gets real lonely. I don't want to be here all winter because I don't want to freeze to death. If this place is full, and you have nowhere to put you, and you have to walk the streets all night, you can freeze to death. I know a lot of people have frozen that. No, no, no. My name is Tashina. I'm nine years old and I'm homeless. Yeah. I've been home for yeah. two years. Yeah. It feels hard to be homeless. Being homeless is scary, sad, and it's embarrassing because people tease you for living in a place like this. There's more and more homeless people that you see every day. They just seem that we don't exist. We do exist, and there's a lot of us. I tell you, St. Paul, Minneapolis, there's thousands. You just don't realize it. Maybe they'll go away if you don't see them. They're not going to go away. And there's more every day. I see new faces every day. There's more and more homeless people that you see every day. Every people come down here from 19, 18 to... 
70. I believe they should help us. All ages. Say you work out at Ford. They shut down for a month, two months. You're low on the list. You lose your job. How long does it take to lose your house if you don't make a payment? I believe there's a lot of people that uh, are just on the edge. I think it'll happen so quick to people. They don't even know what they're going to do about it. They'll be totally lost. The maid will come in and take their house, and then what do I do? My name is Toy, and I'm homeless. Well, I really believe that almost probably 70% of people in this country are just one paycheck away from being homeless. This is a tough country to live in. What is the purpose of life? Let me ask you. Again, that's The Land of 10,000 Homeless Project by Andrew Turpening. This one's off a benefit CD for giveusyourpoor.org. Kitchensisters.org is the place to find all the Sisters series. I'm Barrett Golding. There's links to everything you heard this hour at Hearing Voices. From NPR, this is hearingvoices.com.